please be aware that this is for professional investors only. Hello, it's Wednesday, the 15th of July. It's that time of the week again for your morning espresso. So as usual, please just take a look below and you'll see a couple of buttons there. One is a Q&A button where you can ask us your questions. And the other one is an instantaneous translation. So if you would like to have uh, this conversation in another language other than English, please click there and you have a number of choices. So. In time-honored fashion, we will start with uh, a piece about the macro economy and where we're at right now. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Sebastian Galli, who's our senior macro strategist. Good morning. Good morning. Hi. So, the COVID-19 crisis, it seems to continue to spread. And uh, in certain parts of the US, it's getting a little bit out of control. I read uh, at the weekend, the headline was Florida smashes US single day record. Yeah. Um, do you think we should expect worse or better to come now? First worse. And uh, in essence, what you have is uh, issues in terms of management of the health policy in the United States. And that's a kind word to say. But people who like to control things have difficulties when things go out of control and it takes them a while basically to change completely their position. And this is what you should expect probably within a month coming out of the White House, which is them taking uh, again control of the situation and changing quite fundamentally their health policy. For now, as we can see with Fossey being pushed on the side, it's not yet the case, but uh, they're really going to one of the edges and which means the probability that they change course is uh, is a very large one. So in essence, it's a, it's a positive message. First, it's gonna get worse, but eventually we're gonna get a radical change. So Sebastian, last week, I don't know if you saw it, but we were talking with uh, the guys from Mackay Shields and we had their, one of their economists on as well. And we were talking about this sort of push and pull factors in the market right now, where, you know, on the one hand, you've got sort of COVID and, and the battle against COVID. On the other hand, there's, there's some evidence, sort of early evidence, let's put it that way, of an economic recovery. Um, last week, we saw that you know, equities were, were under quite a bit of pressure. How's this going to How's this going to evolve now? How, what's What's your take on this? I think what What's happening is the economic data eventually will will pull through, and that will basically drive equities, both uh, the the more standard kind of stocks to the more high growth stocks. And as it pushes everything, particularly the growth stocks, especially higher, then we're going to detach ourselves from a reality, at least uh, on the growth stock side, and probably on the more standard or value stocks uh, side also. And that means that eventually by September or October, we're gonna reach a wall and we're gonna hit the wall of reality, which means a phase of consolidation. And to us, that means uh, prudence, particularly on uh, growth stocks. You wanna be uh, somewhat prudent on, on these ones. That means as they steadily rise in value, then you should probably start to take some profit. So another thing, uh, coming back closer to home um, here in Europe, in two days time, we've got the uh, European Commission who will be meeting, uh, that's on the 17th of July, this Friday, um, to decide how to advance on this proposed package. I think it's 
something like 750 billion euros that was proposed initially, uh, but that's yet to be agreed upon. What kind of outcome do you expect from this meeting on, on Friday? Well, this is Europe. So in essence, um, it's, it's a bit like a, a turtle or a completely disjointed turtle that has to go through a parkour, basically jump around and do things. And it does it very slowly and, and very inelegantly, but it actually does it. And the only time it accelerates is when there's a deep crisis. And so what probably will be happening is that 750 billion is not what we're going to get. You're probably looking at 655 $50 billion to satisfy the hawks. Uh, and you're looking basically at a package probably except on the 17th of July. Many people are pretty sure it actually won't happen on the 17th of July. It will happen at the next meeting. I think I'm a bit more positive. The Europeans know that they need to do something. The Italians have seen, have shown some uh, capacity to want to do something in terms of reform. And that means there will be some form of reward. And $650 billion package is, uh, is a pretty good deal. And that probably is very good for Europe, especially, of course, uh, Italy, financials and the likes. Great. So maybe we should uh, just do a quick review um, of the main points then from, from this morning. So first of all, we expect the White House to eventually turn the tide on COVID-19. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you should, in essence, they can't get worse. So they, you already <laughs> think it can't get worse, but it does. But I think now we've reached basically the bottom within a, a month or so. You sure about that? <laughs> I'm pretty certain. Yeah. yeah. Okay, good. So constructive on risk, but we're worried a bit about growth at the moment. It may have overshot already. I think it, we're in process of, a, well, it probably overshot to start with, but it's going to continue to overshoot. These things always move far more than you expect. And if you have good data to back it, then of course it's going to overshoot even more. That means the likes of Tesla could get a lot more expensive, but it becomes very, very um, yeah, caution, I think is a, is a term which is warranted. Yeah, perfect. And then um, this Friday, we expect a reduced EU package for the end of July. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, this is probably you're going to get it. I think expectations right now are relatively low. What will surprise some is the size of the package, but it pretty much is self-evident that it has to shrink. Great. Well, thank you, Sebastian, for your time this morning. Uh, without further ado, I'm going to pass over the baton to Jeremy. Anagnos from CBRE Clarion. Jeremy is the uh, portfolio manager of the Global Listed Infrastructure Strategy. Um, can you hear me, Jeremy? Yes, Paul. Good morning. Hi, good morning. So, Jeremy, as part of the research for this session, um, we discovered that your family heritage is a little bit fishy. Uh, <laughs> That's right. I hope you know what I'm referring to. You're not going to say something completely off the wall. Um, uh, yeah, do you want to tell us a little bit about your your, your family? Yeah, sure. I I, uh, I grew up in a large uh, family, uh, Greek background, and um, my great grandfather started a, a seafood business um, uh, in Connecticut, where where I grew up, and uh, continues this day to be uh, managed and and run by a number of my siblings. And I worked there as, as a child and um, all the way up until college, uh, doing all sorts of things related to you know, the distribution of seafood and cutting fish. And, and uh, yeah, I was quite active in the fish market. But you don't enjoy fishing particularly. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, uh, um, I do not enjoy fishing at all. And my, uh, I've come to uh, 
you know, things come back to you, which is my oldest son loves to fish. It's his absolute passion. And so um, I have suffered through a few uh, outings on a boat for hours with him um, just because it's what makes him happy, but uh, definitely not something I enjoy too much. Okay, let's go from fishing then to hunting, hunting for good equities in the global listed infrastructure space, um, which is what you do and, and you've been doing for many years. So before we start, perhaps it's, it makes sense here at this conjecture just to talk about, you know, what do you understand by infrastructure? Let's define the universe. Let's understand also some of the characteristics of, of global listed infrastructure. And to this end, I think we've got a slide um, that you brought along today. Yeah. Great. I think this really helps give our perspective, which is that infrastructure investing involves uh, essential assets um, that have characteristics around uh, high barriers to entry, um, very consistent demand profile. There's, they're inelastic to typical economic environments uh, and very predictable growth. Um, and you can see falling into kind of four uh, key sectors here, um, all of which require a constant level uh, of investment because most of this infrastructure that we, we talk about, these physical assets, they're aging um, and they just require a constant investment for their efficiency, but also for safety purposes, for reliability purposes, um, and, and for new technologies as well. So it uh, becomes a very um, high cash generative uh, business, but one that uh, generates um, you know, future growth as well as, as the companies invest for you know, those, those required purposes. Paul, you're on mute. Yeah, I was having a sneaky drink of water there. So I mute myself. Well caught, thank you. Um, yeah, so you mentioned the defensive nature of the asset class. Um, but obviously this has been a pretty crazy first six months of the year and and we saw quite big drawdowns um in infrastructure uh, actually they drew, dropped more than global equity um during that that time so we saw then the recovery i just wondered if you could sort of shed some light on why you we saw this actually what is pretty atypical or, or not typical sort of behavior uh, in the asset class those characteristics that we just saw about, you know, the high barriers to entry and the consistent cash flows, you know, has historically led to these companies and the, the companies that own these assets to have a very, as you said, defensive profile. So in normal cyclical environments, you know, when markets pull back due to concerns about, you know, an economic contraction or recession, we've typically seen them go down around 50 to 60% of what the market performance is. Um, and they're they're capturing most of the upside, typically 80% when the market rises. So, you know, they are uh, less, again, el elastic in that cycle. But as you noted, this cycle has been very different. So uh, starting in February, when the market pulled back, uh, infrastructure captured about 100% of that pullback, which uh, very atypical, atypical. This was not, you know, a, a normal uh, market behavior. Uh, and I still think we're going to have to wait until we get through this full cycle as uh, noted by Sebastian, you know, we're still in this COVID, you know, crisis. And, and um, I think we haven't necessarily seen the worst of, of uh, the full cycle here, but what we can explain so far is that um, there certainly has been a lot of uh, program trading that's gone on in the infrastructure uh, sector. 
a lot of uh, quantitative type factors that have been used in you know, momentum and, and quality and value and things that get talked about in, in the headlines. And our infrastructure stocks have just been out of favor. You know, value's been very out of favor. Um, growth has been very much in favor. Uh, and uh, as a result, just I think more to, to you know, those um, factor uh, descriptions rather than the actual quality of the cash flows themselves, which have been quite resilient, you know, the stocks have pulled back. So uh, to us, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's an opportunity really because uh, it, it doesn't behave the way we would expect it and certainly isn't behaving the way we see the underlying earnings of most of these companies, you know, continuing to show their resilience. And we, we again, we have a, the next slide um, talking about the valuation because valuations are starting to look super attractive now. Maybe you can talk to us about, about that on this chart here. Yeah, on the left side, uh, we're looking at the EBITDA multiple of the infrastructure market as compared to um, the U.S. equity market as, as, a, as a barometer. And you can see we're trading, you know, at a 15% discount to the long-term average of where uh, the infrastructure stocks trade. Um, another chart we have, not on here, but we're also trading at a, a very high premium to um, corporate bond yields. So the dividend yield of, of infrastructure, um, again, trading at a very high uh, premium to corporate bond yields, way above its uh, long-term average. So we've got the asset class trading at a discount, and then we relative to equities and bonds. And then we also have it trading at a discount to the private infrastructure market. So uh, these assets are you know, highly sought after by pension funds and large uh, sovereign funds and insurance companies for those consistent characteristics. Uh, we've seen some transactions actually occur just in the last couple of weeks um, uh, across uh, the globe, again, reinforcing the valuation disconnect that we see in the listed market. So you know, it does seem like there's been uh, some irrational behavior in the market, some overselling, uh, and it does look like an attractive time, I think, for investors. Um, and we'll talk a bit about, you know, why we think that is uh, probably as we, we move over to the right-hand side of this, uh, this yeah. slide. Yeah, exactly. So I, I think it's really interesting, the point you just mentioned, because I know that last year um, there was already a big gap between the, the private and the public markets where the private markets were going into the public market and buying companies and privatizing them. And I guess that's something that you're, you're alluding to that's gonna continue and perhaps even see more of uh, in, the, in the next years, months and years ahead. Yeah. I, th I think we, we, we may well see you know, the M&A activity. I, I, we certainly know the capital's there, right? The capital's been continuing to, to be raised by Private funds, uh, institutional allocations continue to rise. Uh, infrastructure is being added to a real asset allocation around the world. So there's definitely a, a, a demand from a capital base. And now you have to think about the supply, the supply of, of infrastructure assets. And we just don't build a lot of these you know, core infrastructure assets around the world. And so the existing assets are likely increasing in value, if anything, you know, over the last yeah. several, several months. And then on the right-hand side of this slide that we're seeing again, um, what, we're, what we're looking at uh, from the, the general, the broad market, is companies sending profit warnings, EPS growth being trimmed down massively, actually on a, a lot of global equities. Is that true of infrastructure sector? 
you know, we, we talk about it being inelastic and, and um, you know, less sensitive to economic cycles. And, and as we show here, it's not completely, you know, uh, it, it's not, it is impacted in some way. It's not, uh, you know, completely sheltered from what's going on in the COVID environment. But for the most part, you know, it's far less impacted. As you can see, the, the biggest impact is in the transportation sector, uh, which is things like airports and toll roads, certainly volumes there are being impacted. Uh, but you, you have the you know, bulk of the infrastructure asset class is actually going to still continue to show growth this year in earnings uh, and in dividends. So, um, you know, when we look at the broader equity market and depends on where you are, but, you know, many companies have just abandoned your know, earnings guidance for this year. Uh, we still have companies giving three to five years of earnings guidance. Uh, you know, over 60 percent of our companies are, are still you know, providing some some predictability and visibility to their earnings. So uh, it is just a, a because of the regulation of, you know, 75% of these companies are regulated. There's a known return that that's a, it's in a, you know, very stable construct. So we don't have to worry too much about, you know, the visibility again to those earnings profiles. Exactly. And, and just generally speaking, if, I, if my understanding is correct, uh, dividend payments tend to be higher than the broader market as well uh, within the infrastructure. So not only stable, but also th the yield, if you like, is higher as well. That's right. Yeah. So we've, we've talked a little bit about uh, the asset class and about the companies within the asset class, but there's another important thing that's happened as a result of COVID amongst other things as well. And that's government policy, uh, because this obviously drives infrastructure to, to a degree and, and perhaps now to an ever-growing degree. I just wondered whether these, these policy initiatives that we expect to see out of the US and out of Europe, um, is, do you think that's gonna be an important driver or, or was it always an important driver maybe? <laughs> uh, the answer to both questions is yes. You know, it's always <laughs> been an important driver. Uh, it, since they are regulated, they you know, are somewhat determined in terms of what they can do and the investments they can make uh, are determined by the policies that are set. So having a supportive policy backdrop is, is definitely important. And I think what we're seeing today is the policies that are coming out are favoring the types of things that we, we see a lot of our companies gravitating towards. So things like, you know, having a cleaner energy future and the policies that are, that are being designed around that, you know, favor a lot of the infrastructure market, you know, 60% of what we can invest in is, is associated with the energy market. Um, policies that favor in the U.S. are talking about expanding rural uh, broadband exposure. So, you know, more, um, if we're going to have more work from home and kids being schooled online, you know, you need communities, you know, more than the ones in the dense urban locations, but all across the U.S. to have the network and connectivity. And so the investment into the communication infrastructure to support that, you know, and, and that's a going on in, in other markets as well. So those are policy, policy drivers that I see for the future, um, particularly because the companies have gravitated their, their businesses to um, capitalize on those types of policy you know, shifts. So you mentioned it just in passing there about, you know, the move towards greener policy. And uh, we're going to talk about this this decarbonization trend as an example in, in a moment we've, we've got a slide coming up on that but actually i've got two questions come in 
um, and they're linked. And so I'm just going to read them to you. Uh, so according to recent studies, consumers, companies, institutions and governments are increasingly asking for sustainable slash green solutions. Um, do you see such a trend in the area of infrastructure as well? And it's a kind of follow up question linked to this as well. Um, is that reflected basically in the portfolio? Do you prefer companies that offer more sustainable solutions in their respective uh, fields? And in your opinion, will they have an advantage going forward? Huge compound question, lots of things, but maybe you could just touch upon uh, on that. Yeah, no, it, it is a huge question. And, <laughs> and you know, uh, particularly encompassing, you know, a global you know, set of companies that we look, la look at and uh, a range of industries uh, that, you know, infrastructure companies are exposed to. Uh, as we saw earlier in the definition, but I would say for sure there's a a push for you know just thinking about the sustainable part of you know the construction of infrastructure assets. So um, you know the types of materials used, uh, where they're being sourced from. You know all of that uh, type of analysis is being done at the corporate level, and there are the questions that we are asking the companies uh, as well. And so there's a a sustainable aspect. I think you know to us this is more encompassing because because they are regulated entities and because the assets that our companies own are very sensitive to what we use as society um, you know this has always been important to us when we think about kind of the esg characteristics of infrastructure companies you know they need to be good stewards of their assets not just good stewards of their capital for for investors but they have to properly maintain their assets they have to have great safety um, uh, you know, protocols, they have to be mindful of their role in the environmental impact that they have and, and uh, take on, you know, a, a leading position to address those when, when confronted. Um, and so, you know, we see our role is to challenge the companies on that, but also, you know, we're seeing a reaction from, from the companies as well as, as there's a broader and broader, you know, understanding of what society is, is demanding of them you know, not just from a sustainable perspective, but but a more all-encompassing, you know, uh, the both the environmental, uh, you know, the the social and the governance uh, components. And I, and I know from being out on the road with you guys as well that you're not only talking to the the companies about that, you're also talking about the policymakers and 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 the governments, the regulator about where where they're going and what they're seeing. That also plays into it, doesn't it? It, it very much does. And, and I think, you know, one of the reasons why we focus on developed markets um, is the transparency that you tend to get in the developed markets on that regulatory side. So regulators uh, in the US, in Europe, in Australia, in Japan, they, they communicate with uh, the investment market, with, with equity and debt investors. Um, so we meet with them uh, to discuss and, and understand what are their objectives? So what are they trying to, you know, based on policy that's being set at whatever a state or federal level, you know, how is then the regulator interpreting that policy and then how are they applying it? And what are the parameters of which they want the companies to operate in? And, you know, generally there's, there's a positive tilt to this because they recognize as we do the important role of these assets in society. They want them to be safe. They want them to be efficient. They want them to invest in them to, um, you know, continue to adapt to society's changing needs, um, but it's important for us to to be meeting with them and and have that 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 direct understanding of what's being communicated to the companies. 
Great. So we, we touched upon this decarbonisation theme um, just in passing earlier. And I wanted to perhaps call up that slide now that you brought with you um, where you start talking about, you know, this is an example and showing that how it can benefit some areas more than perhaps others. So perhaps you can talk us through this. We've shown here on this slide, uh, all those four key sectors that we talked about, you know, that make up the infrastructure market. Um, and really the, the first uh, sector and the last sector are, are that energy sector. I said, you know, 60% of what we can invest in is, is around energy. And you can see, you know, certainly from a utility perspective, you know, direct impact on, you know, scope one emissions. These are the companies that produce energy. Uh, and, you know, they can thus have a huge impact in helping the globe achieve its, you know, net zero carbon um, uh, initiatives. Uh, we've given an example here of NL, which is an Italian utility investing in uh, the clean energy uh, production side of the market. So they're investing in solar and wind uh, facilities, hydro, uh, all around the world and replacing and, and even shutting down, you know, the fossil fuel generation assets, uh, typically coal, which is the highest carbon production. Uh, and that investment, that opportunity you can see is going to you know, continue to um, it's going to be an opportunity for them for really over 20 years, but you know, right now they're making an impact in reducing carbon. Uh, but you see it in, in the energy transportation side as well. So companies that transport energy um, like Chenier, which is moving um, uh, natural gas from the U.S. to uh, China and India, which is uh, markets which are far behind in terms of a renewable perspective, but they are uh, the highest coal uh, users in the world today. And so if we can move those markets from coal to natural gas, you know, substantial reduction in, um, you know, carbon intensity. Uh, we also see it in the transportation side. Um, obviously, the transportation uh, universe as a whole, you know, um, the cars and planes that we use produce a lot of carbon. Uh, so if we can make our roads more efficient, if we can add more uh, infrastructure on the road network to enable, um, you know, uh, battery uh, driven cars, so electrifying some of the charging stations along the way, you can see reducing uh, the carbon footprint. Uh, and then even communications, where Equinix is a global uh, data center owner, uh, and we're all using more data centers right now as our, um, our video here is being you know, communicated through some data center all uh, across uh, the Atlantic. Um, but you know, those are heavy users of power. They're um, massive intensity of power to cool all of the components in there, to power all of the systems. So um, Equinix actually has been leading a charge to um, procure renewable energy, uh, almost 100% of it now coming from uh, sourcing power for all of their data centers around the world uh, from renewable energy sources. So they can, again, have a direct impact in lowering you know, their carbon uh, footprint. Um, and so we view our analysis of these companies, you know, we're looking at their ability to generate earnings and grow dividends, but in ways that um, increasingly, th these are ways that they can add value uh, because they're gonna attract uh, more tenants and Equinix's case who are looking for renewable sources. They're gonna be, you know, providing solutions uh, for their clients and, and NL's case to help them make that, that energy transition directly. So. Um, we see it as an investment opportunity and, and as a, a way of, of moving towards that sustainable future. And, and I, I'm assuming all of these are in the portfolio, is that? 
a fair assumption. That, that's correct. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. All these are in the portfolio. Yeah. Great. What we're going to do now is uh, is the key takeaways. Feel free to um, stop me or add something if you feel um, that's, that makes sense. Um, in terms of an asset class, just just very briefly, it's it's a defensive asset class. Um, high barriers to entry, in part because of this 60% of the business being regulated. Obviously, that creates a barrier to entry as well. But um, very clearly defined revenue streams, predictable growth. Um, so we think that this is a, perhaps a, a good asset class to be investing in when you see volatility and uncertainty in the, in the marketplace. Um, that said, we have seen underperformance um, this year. Uh, that's an anomaly. Um, we think that, uh, that going forward, that it will continue to be defensive. Um, and uh, that will be driven by resilient earnings, the growth this year, and also a, a likely rebound next year. Um, and valuations are looking more compelling than they have done for a while now, uh, particularly against the broader markets. And then finally, we have this government policy um, where we have initiatives both in the US and in Europe that will likely support infrastructure. And, you know, two of the topics, we've just got the example there with decarbonization, but also you touched at the end there on, on data growth. This is another area where we expect to see um, a lot of growth going forward. Anything else to add, Jeremy, before we sign off for today? No, I think that covers a lot of it. I, I do think, you know, we're, we're going to see when, when companies come forward with Q2 earnings, right? Q2 was going to capture a lot of uh, the biggest impact of COVID. Um, and, and perhaps it will shine a big light on that earnings resilience story, um, which wasn't as evident in Q1, obviously, because, you know, half of that period or more, you know, the market was still behaving relatively uh, normal without COVID. And now with Q2, we were full into it. So I think that, you know, we could see, you know, that, that uh, realization in the market of that resilience and reiteration of, of a majority of the infrastructure companies around uh, their cash flow stability and their outlook for this year and next year, you know, versus the broader market, it's just gonna, you know, shine a big light uh, of how differentiated I think the asset class is. Excellent. Well, thank you very much to, for, your, for your time today, Jeremy. That's been super interesting. I think it's a fascinating asset class. And I think this one that uh, people will be reading more and more about uh, as time goes by. So thanks again for joining us. Thank you also, Sebastian, uh, for the macro piece at the beginning of the session. Next week, uh, on the 22nd of July, I'll be talking about global gender diversity strategy with the portfolio managers. And I've got a plot spoiler. Um, companies that privilege gender diversity tend to do better than those that don't. To find out more about that, uh, tune in next week. In the meantime, don't forget to visit uh, our Stay Alert microsite at nordia.lu. And there you will find all the past uh, interviews that we've done. You'll find podcasts and a Q&A so, section. So um, that's it. I look forward to seeing you next week.